We're back uh, to John chapter 17 tonight, after two weeks off for Easter and for our Passion for Life events. So do turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 17, and, and keep it open as we'll be making reference to it throughout tonight's sermon. We're in verses uh, 6 to 19 of this Jesus' prayer before he goes to the cross. But before I read, um, let me tell you a little story. This is something that happened to me um, during an events week I was helping at with a Christian union up in Aberdeen a couple of years ago, I think. Myself and another friend who was helping at the week, we were having lunch with these, these, these two students who had been coming along to these events. They weren't Christians. They were just kind of looking around trying to find out what they thought about these things. As we got to chatting over lunch, the conversation turned toward the Bible. And they're considering what they've been hearing throughout the week. And at some point, one of the guys turns to me and he says, I can't trust it. I can't trust this Bible. It's been written by men. Men are corrupt. Men are liars. Why should I trust them? I wonder what you would say to that question. It's a, it's a common objection that people have towards the Bible. This guy, he obviously didn't think that the words that we receive about Jesus are reliable enough. Maybe there's someone here tonight who thinks like this. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You have your questions about the words that are found in this book, the Bible. Or maybe you are a Christian, but you still hold some reservations, some, some doubts as to what we have written of Jesus' life. Was it written by mere men? Like the rest of human history, which some people think is fuzzy and uncertain, how confident can we be of the disciples' words, of the apostolic word, as we, have written, as we have it written down in this book. Can I trust them? I read recently um, in a comedy page on the internet, this is a joke, I read recently, that it said, one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever performed was to have 12 close friends in his 30s. <laughs> but here's something interesting. Jesus spends most of his last prayer before he goes to the cross on his 12 friends. Isn't that interesting? Shouldn't I make our eyebrows raise a little bit? Why are they so important? Well, tonight we'll see that as Jesus prays for his disciples in our verses, we realize that they and their words are truly, authentically, the perfect meeting point between God himself and us. That's what Jesus is praying for in our verses. And so, yes, I can trust these words. They really are how I can meet God himself. Maybe you've just heard that, and you're thinking, wait, hang on, Davy. I thought that it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the perfect meeting point between us and God. Isn't that right? Well, if you're thinking that, you would be absolutely right. That's what we saw a couple of weeks ago when Alex was preaching in the first five verses of this prayer. We, what we saw, that it, this prayer is all about God's plan to glorify himself. That's what Jesus is praying for. Alex highlighted to us that to glorify God, in essence, is to kind of make him, know, make him known. And so Jesus is praying that God would work out his plan of having a people know him and gain eternal life so that his perfect character could be revealed to all. 
And Jesus' work is definitely very, very crucial to this. His moment on the cross must have happened so that we would be able to know God and be reconciled to him. That's absolutely right. That's the first five verses of the prayer that we're going to read in a minute. But how do I know this Jesus 2,000 years later? Well, it seems from Jesus' prayer that the disciples have an immense part to play in this glorifying of God also. More specifically, their words. These words that we have written down here. According to this prayer, these are the words that make God known. These are the words that are the perfect meeting place between us and God, exactly as Jesus is. So we must consider what Jesus prays would be true of these men very carefully. Hopefully this will be useful for... um, clearing up questions maybe that you have about the Bible and the words that we find in this book. I must admit, I'm not going to be able to answer every single question that you have, but do ask them later on. And I must also admit that tonight's sermon, it might sound like it's all about these guys that lived 2,000 years ago, and it's not really about us. It might sound like that. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Because it is through these men and their words that Jesus chooses to save us. These men and their words are of utmost importance to our faith. So let's read it, the whole prayer, John John chapter 17. Listen up for this bit in the middle, our verses, verses 6 to 19. Listen for how Jesus speaks of these men. What exactly makes the disciples' words the perfect meeting place between us and God himself? Have a think about that as we read. Let me read verses, uh, the whole of chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's jump straight into our first point for tonight. you find these in the sheets that are found in your Bibles. Our first point for tonight, Jesus prays affirming his disciples are authentic. That's verses 6 to 10. If you're slightly unsure as to how it is that we know that Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples in these verses, that's a really, really good question. Um, hopefully you picked up the clues as we went through the prayer. There's one in verse 9. Have a look down there. He's praying for specific people. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And verse 12, the second half of verse 12, really seals it as he makes reference to Judas, the man has just left to go betray Jesus. He says, I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the son of destruction, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So we can be sure that Jesus is speaking about his disciples here. He's praying for them. And the question we've been asking is, who, who were these men really? What exactly makes the disciples' words the perfect meeting place between us and God himself? We'll have a look at what Jesus says that these disciples are the recipients of. That's in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. These guys are really special, aren't they? Look at what is true of these men. They were God's own, given to Jesus as his son, as a gift. They were taken out of the world, handpicked especially by God the Father to give to Jesus' his son as a gift. How amazing is that? If you were um, here to see our Mark drama performances a couple of weeks ago, you will have seen from the brilliant performances of all our actors, well done, how normal, how kind of bang average these disciples were. They were just fishermen and a tax collector and a few other blokes, no different to anyone else to the naked eye. But in God's eyes, in his sovereignty, they were his. They were not just anyone. No longer just bang average men. How do we know that this is true of them? That they were supernaturally set apart from other men? Well, it's not obvious, I don't think. They didn't glow in the dark or anything like that. But I think verses 7 to 8 tell us. Have a look down there. Now they know 
that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them, that's Jesus giving the disciples, the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. It seems the proof of their special position in God's plan is that they respond appropriately to Jesus. They believe what he says. They look at Jesus' life, they listen to his words, and they understand and believe that he has come from God the Father. Do you see how Jesus has kind of already succeeded in a very small way in his mission to glorify God? He has successfully made him known to the disciples. And his success is guaranteed by God's sovereign choosing of them. Can you think um, of a place in John's gospel where this is evident? Where we see the disciples understanding what Jesus is all about? Well, actually, it's, it's just happened in chapter 16. I saw this a wee while ago. We get a little glimpse into what the disciples were really thinking of Jesus. How much they properly understood was still to be confirmed, but they did understand something. Look, look at verse 29 of chapter 16. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That's why we believe that you came from God. Finally, these men begin to receive all that they've been given. They've come to know God the Father through Jesus. What a privilege for them. Think about it like this. Before they could have uttered the words of chapter 16. Before they could say of themselves, I believe, they were God's chosen, given to Jesus, Jesus as a gift, kept by Jesus, and had God revealed to them by Jesus, all before they could say, ah, now I believe. What, why is this important? Why am I laboring this point? I'm not sure what you think of the disciples. I don't know if you consider them often. Maybe you think that they were brave heroes who kind of led the faith. After all, we have these kind of big stained glass windows of them all around us tonight. How were they able to become so prominent in history? Well, first and foremost, because of this sovereign exchange between the Father and the Son, they had nothing to do with it. It wasn't that they were especially clever. It wasn't that they were especially brave or powerful in and of themselves. But they were God's chosen, given to Jesus as a gift. That puts them into another category, doesn't it? It would be wrong to call them mere men. They're really seriously not simply mere men anymore. We're into a new category of mankind here. What we have are the first Christians. They were the first people that this happened to, the first people that responded authentically, and God chose them. They have definitely been authenticated. They are the real deal. Their connection to God is immense, it's secure, it's perfect. And so they really can be the point at which all other believers can come to know God and Jesus. Do you see how Jesus is putting them front and center here in his prayer? Do you see how in God's plan, his messengers must be completely authentic? If they are to be the meeting place, the way that God is made known after Jesus departs to the Father, they must be rock solid in their connection to the source. 
Are they? What do you think? We cannot get to know God but through them. And thank God he's even in control of that. And he has produced men with authentic authority who were chosen before time began and given to Jesus by God, who received first-hand revelation from Jesus himself and responded with authentic belief. As the importance of these men, hopefully, is escalating in your mind, you might be tempted to ask yourself these questions that many people throughout the centuries have asked. Maybe you're thinking, well, they wrote their stuff down a long time ago, didn't they? Or maybe they had bad memories. Or maybe there was corrupted second-hand information. Or maybe they changed their minds. Well, let's have a look at what else Jesus prays for them. That's our second point for tonight. Jesus prays that his disciples will remain authentic. That's verses 11 to 16. Have a look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Look how close the connection is described here. As much as Jesus is one with the Father, they are one with the Father now. And we need to take a second to appreciate that, because it's immense. The relationship, with which Jesus, the relationship which Jesus has with his Father is now extended to include the disciples. And I think the most powerful way this is illustrated is this. Consider the way in which Jesus is speaking to his Father right now. The requests that he's making openly with expectation of being heard and responded to. That's what the disciples are capable of doing now. No need to go to the temple to speak to God. No need to make sacrifices, etc. Because of Jesus making God known to them, they are now in an equal relationship with God. And Jesus knows that the supernatural connection, it must be kept so that these men will remain the perfect meeting place between God and us. It must be maintained. Jesus has been able to do this while he's been around. But now that he's leaving to go to the cross and to the Father afterwards, he prays that God the Father will continue to keep this connection alive. A quick point before we move on. Do you see how this is all still God? The initiative, the work, it's all him. His plans and the means that he uses, the disciples that he uses to glorify himself, to make himself known to the world, it's all foolproof, this plan, because he's the one that's divinely securing everything. And so they did remain authentically, divinely connected all of their lives. Maybe you're here tonight and you doubt what John writes. Perhaps you're thinking that I'm using John's writings to tell you to believe what John wrote. <laughs> the answer to that is I am 100% doing that. A question we have to grapple with is what does Jesus mean when he asks for God to keep the disciples? What he can't mean is keep them safe. 
He can't mean safety or comfort for the disciples because history tells us that all of these guys but one died because of the message they preached. Does it mean keep them from being crucified upside down as is reported to have happened to Peter? That's just no. Jesus himself says in verse 14 that the world hates them because of the words that Jesus gave them. In fact, the world hates them as much as it does Jesus. And we know how that was demonstrated ultimately, don't we? By an unfair trial and a murder on a cross. So what can Jesus be praying for here? What does he mean? Look closely at verse 11. He prays that the Father will keep them in his name. Verse 12, at the start of verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, says Jesus. He wants them not to lose the grip that they now have of knowing the Father's name, of knowing him. And that's a wonderful thing, a glorious thing, a source of great joy. In fact, that's what Jesus says in verse 13. That's what he prays for, that his joy will be fulfilled in them. How can he pray, how can he pray that, knowing what will happen to them? What kind of joy is there for a disciple of Jesus in the first century? Well, the answer is there's only one secure joy. And that's the joy that Jesus has. The joy of knowing the only and true God and receiving the eternal life that comes with it. I think that's all that is. As Jesus leaves to go to the Father, he wants his disciples to feel the deep joy that comes from knowing God the Father that he cares for them, that he loves them, that he has sent his son to deal with their sin, that he has secured an eternal place for them. That and only that can keep them going through persecution, imprisonment, torture, and ultimately for all of them but one, death. Only God can ensure this, that they don't conform, that they don't give up, that they don't, they don't change their message. It's supernatural. It's evidence of the authenticity of their status. Liars don't die for their cause. They joyfully proclaimed their message amidst tragedy. Their connection was made and it was maintained. Jesus' prayer here has been answered. In fact, you should read the letters that they wrote in this book, the Bible. You'll find that they were relatively joy-filled. <laughs> They really knew God, and they really knew the truth. All of which further highlights how perfect a meeting point they would become between God himself and all those after him. God isn't being mean towards his disciples. In fact, he has given them the deepest joy that can overcome all sorts of trials. And so when Jesus prays in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that's not him being mean. We have to ask, why not take them out? And so again, we return to the big point of this prayer, God's glorifying of himself, making himself known. And it is through these men that God has chosen to make himself known in the world. These men whom he chose, these men whom he kept. And so um, on to our last point for tonight. Jesus prays that his disciples' words will be authentic. That's verses 17 to 19. All of which, all of what we've learned is true of the disciples tonight culminates in these three verses. 
What's the point of choosing these guys securely? Giving them to Jesus so that they would know God. What's the point of keeping them going through the most adverse of situations? What's the point of keeping them joyful in knowing the Father? We've touched on this already, but Jesus makes it explicitly clear in these last two verses. Three verses, 17 to 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. It is exactly their words that Jesus wants to retain and expose. Jesus is praying that God will make sure that their words would survive and be available to the whole world so that the truth would be available to all. Just in the same way Jesus was sent into the world, they are now sent with the word of truth. The God-glorifying truth that brings many people to salvation is delivered through sanctified disciples. Normally we think of that word sanctify, meaning kind of growing in Christ's likeness. That's not really the thrust of it here, though that is true in a sense. Primarily it means to set apart for holy use. You'll see that in the footnotes of your Bible if you have them. The apostles are uniquely set apart for making God known through the truth that they proclaim, through their words, the words that you have in your hand right now. They are the words of God's truth. They have been kept by the Father. They were specially chosen by the Father. And they have been sent in a Jesus-like way. Isn't that an amazing description of their mission? Verse 18, Jesus-like. We have God's words, preserved for us by his chosen, kept, set-apart apostles. What that means is that the disciples' words, uh, the whole apostolic kind of uh, revelation found in the New Testament by implication, is absolutely crucial. We must not forget it or leave it aside. You might have come across um, people or groups who aren't really bothered by God's word, his apostolic witness written down for us. They're all about kind of a relationship with Jesus, but they don't want to become entangled in the ins and outs of what's written of him. Well, often the question for them is, how can you have a good relationship with Jesus if you don't even know who he is? Or what he's like, or what he cares about? All of these things are found in the apostles' words about Jesus. Here's the big point for tonight. It's not just Jesus and me. It's really not. It's Jesus, the apostles' words, then me. And we've seen that the connection between the apostles and God is secure. It's direct to the source. It's reliable. That's why we've had this big chunk of prayer for them. In fact, here's... um, what John's most famous verse would sound like in light of what Jesus has just prayed for. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and the apostolic words written about him that whoever believes in him through the apostolic words written about him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the amazing truth. 
I gain complete access to God's very words of life when I read the words that John wrote down. I can listen to God and know God. He is revealed as well as Jesus himself revealed him through the apostles' words. What's the best way? Think about this. What's the best way for God to communicate his truth throughout the centuries? The millennia. A way that will last and be powerful a way that we can be sure will be authentic and unchangingly truthful, a way in which God can be known by anyone at any time, is words. And what we've learned is that if the apostles were set apart, especially sanctified to tell God's truth, their words are supernatural and have the power to bring people to belief and life. In fact, that's the whole point of John's gospel. We saw that this morning, didn't we? Chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this account so that when people read it, they become Christians. I can think of one person who is not sitting here tonight, but who comes to this church, for whom that is the exact truth. They read John's account of Jesus' life and they believed and now they know God. We've seen John's words are direct from the source. He's an authorized speaker. He's not a liar. If we know his words, if we know the apostles' words, we can know God. God's plan of making himself known, of glorifying himself is fulfilled in the pages of the book that you're holding in your hand right now. Why do you think people risk their lives smuggling Bibles into North Korea? Or spend their lives dedicated to translating these words for the most remote people groups in our world? Or risk their safety and their family's safety so that they can study these words in underground churches all over China? Why do you think that we run explicitly Bible words-focused outreach programs like Life Explored? Why do we have Bible words content in all of our Passion for Life events? It'd be so much easier, wouldn't it? So much more palatable for the apostles' words to be left aside. What do we want for our friends, for our family, for our community most of all? Is it not for them to read and hear these words and believe and come to know God himself and have eternal life? Is that not our greatest concern? These words are the means by which God promises to make himself known through his authentic apostles. Perhaps you're sitting here tonight uh, thinking that the idea of divine inspiration is nonsense. Pie in the sky stuff. Can I encourage you to have a closer look at the evidence? People are very quick to disregard the Bible because it claims the supernatural. But the fact of the matter is, historically, these documents are very strong. And that is important. But I think the biggest piece of evidence that attests to the truthfulness of these words are the words themselves. Read them. They speak countless truths 
about humanity, about life, and about Jesus. Will you read them? See if it seems true. Will you read John's account? But for those of us who are Christians here tonight, do not depart from these words. Have confidence. You don't need any more. Don't depart from John, Peter, Paul, James, Matthew, the whole apostolic witness which is evident to us from these books. They have been chosen by God, given to Jesus, believed in his words, were given his words, supernaturally protected and set apart from the world because of the truth, because of God's truth that they proclaimed. Trust God's work in this. Trust it. Through their words, as we'll see next week, we're as close to God as they were. We're as protected as they were. And we're not exactly as they were, but in a similar vein, set apart as they were. Towards the end of John's Gospel, Jesus says to Thomas, as we saw this morning, blessed are those who do not see and believe. Well, it is through these apostolic words that Thomas should have believed and that we believe. I can be as sure of salvation as they were when they were listening to Jesus in the flesh that resurrection morning. Because of this book, because of these words. That's what Jesus prayed for before he left them for the cross that would secure their salvation and our salvation. The cross that would show the world how great and glorious God's character is. And that is continued in these words that show how great and glorious God's character is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way in which you have revealed yourself so perfectly. Thank you that we can know you, that we have access to the source of truth, the apostolic word. We pray that you would help us to grasp the deep significance of this and marvel at how loving you are to us, that you provide us hope and life that comes from reading your words. Help us to know you more and more day by day, how glorious you are. And if we're here tonight and we do not know you, help us to read your words and know Jesus to be the one in whom I can put my trust for life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.